I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome on today's show we have Ken Faulkner. This guy is a really interesting guy. He focuses all on emotion intelligence, which is really cool, I think. Hello, welcome to the show, Ken. How are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic. Doing brilliant, Aaron. Thank you very much for the invitation to come on. Well, Ken, where, where are you from? I'm from a mighty town called Larne, which is up on the northeast coast of Ireland, way up at the northeast. So it's in County Antrim, up in Northern Ireland. You've probably heard of Port Stewart, Port Rush, Giant Causeway, just round the coast from that a wee bit. And what was it like growing up in that area at that time? Growing up in Larne, uh, we'll put it this way, I'm still here. I've never left the town. So, you know, it's my hometown. And we tend to find that there's a lot of people who come into the town for holidays. And we tend not to appreciate what we have in our own towns. We, we become complacent. But it's quite rural. with plenty of countryside around us. We have the coast. We have two or three beaches all within five miles. Uh, so, yeah, growing up as a, a place to live has been good. Uh, I've worked here all my life. I've worked in Larne and then I ended up working in Belfast for a few years and come down in Port of Town. But I started off with my working life in my own hometown. So born and bred is what we say in Larne. It's interesting how you're born and bred there, but probably you've, you've seen the world at the same at the same time, right? Uh, not so much of the world, really. Europe. Yes, uh, Spain, Holland, mostly Spain really for holidays. But, you know, as a, as a kid growing up, most of our holidays happened to be in Scotland. So it was taking the ferry over to Scotland, over to the mainland and holidaying in there. But after we got married, we started to use planes and go longer distances. And what did your parents do, Ken? Uh, well, I actually worked to my father. Uh, he owned a concrete factory, a precast concrete factory in Larne here. Uh, and I suppose that was my introduction to the construction industry because he was a builder supplier a concrete manufacturer and I worked with him from when I was well unofficially from when I was probably about 12 you know got up on Saturdays or days off school hanging about the place but officially working to my dad from when I was 16 uh, I was a joiner I worked through the ranks up there, did almost every job available in that factory and then I became a, a lorry driver all within that period as well so that's what my dad did. Uh, my mum, she was housewife all her life. She and then she worked in a nursing home. Uh, my mum, very very caring lady, always caring about other people's. Yeah, my mum, very very caring, and she always spent a lot of time visiting people and, and working in nursing homes and places like that. In in working with your dad, did you learn lessons about yourself and the concrete working as well? 
Not so much lessons, lessons about myself. Uh, I learned a lot of respect for parents. I learned that my dad was a really, really hard worker. Uh, the job that we were in was very, very manual. Uh, my dad, he had his first set of uh, hips replaced when he was about 45, 46. And he continued to work and they had a neck, another set of hips because the first set wore out and had another set in his early 50s. So he was, yeah, I think it was about eight or nine years between his hip replacements. Uh, and that's what I learned from my dad, uh, an extremely hard worker. What did you learn from your mum? I suppose my mum taught me my morals, my values, discipline. Discipline in the good old kinesthetic way. Remember, I'm 57 now. So back in those days, you were you were brought up to have good values, good morals, good beliefs. I suppose that that is the early programming that we talk about in childhood. You know, we know that the first seven years of anyone's life are really the, the imprint period for their belief systems. You know, and they have said, give me a child to seven, I'll show you the man. So very grateful for that upbringing, uh, that it was instilled values, morals within, which I still hold today. I never applied, maybe just wasn't the, the way that uh, the modern families would apply them. But yeah, I, I still hold on to it. It's interesting how the values and those concepts still exist in modern Ireland and modern world today. I think it's important, you know, uh, to have good morals, to have values, to be able to respect other people. You know, that should be the baseline for anyone, you know, to, to realise that there is a quality. You know, that, that's the baseline for, for anybody growing up. But really should be. It should be the bare minimum for people both to respect themselves and to respect others. As a young individual who's looking to climb up into in the world and earn his own money and do everything, how, how did, were you able to apply these concepts to the life at that time, being a young teenager and young adult? I suppose I never really thought about where I was going when I was young. I sort of just fell into different opportunities. A lot of people say, you know, that oh, you were lucky and other people say, no, you, there's not such a thing as luck. You, you, you make your own luck. Really, every decision that we make in life, Arne, is going to lead us to where we are right now. So every decision that we have made, it would have been the right decision to make at that time. Now, does it mean that every decision we've ever made in our lives were the right ones? Well, that's absolutely not the case. But when we make decisions, the decisions that we make at that time, with the information that we have, will tend to be the decision that needs to be made at the time. So that's really what leads us up through life. I left my father's concrete yard after he had retired through ill health. As I said, you know, he was he was a tough worker. He, had, he was riddled with arthritis. Uh, so I went on then and started the site work and I started working on building sites. Initially as a maintenance joiner and within six months I was given a, a site as a foreman. So within six months then I've gone on to site work, I uh, became foreman. Really from there, you know, it, it was in my blood, the building site, the construction. There was a brief moment after about five or six years in that I'd left and went back to the factory conditions uh, for another big uh, concrete factory and became their sales and marketing manager. Stayed there about four or five years, maybe five years, and then I was enticed back into a site. I just, I love both parts. You know, there was there was never a day in my life where I woke up thinking, oh no, I have to go to work. You know, I've been very fortunate that every day of my life, I was looking forward to it with regards to work, doing the job and, and seeing progress. You know, I'm a very kinesthetic person. I like to do things. I like to see things. I like to, to see the construction of things. And I suppose when I come up through the sites, uh, you know, I eventually ended up as director of construction for Northern Ireland's largest home builder at the time. So I spent all my life really within the construction side. So we were talking about decisions earlier on. The decisions that we went through, uh, I made a few, I suppose, in my private life that many other people had done it at the time. Uh, I got heavily involved in the property market privately. And when I got involved in that market, uh, everything was nice and rosy until the recession hit. And when the recession hit, I had quite a few properties, but they all went into negative equity. And at that point, Aaron, it, it, that was a tough time in my life because I felt a lot of guilt around that. 
you know, I took that very personally, that it was only me that this was happening to. In my perception, it was only me and that I had made this mistake and that I had caused other people around me, the people that I love, pain and grief. Uh, in my head, I was a real terrible father. I was a shit husband. I, you know, I, I went through a time in my life where I was just riddled with guilt because of the belief systems, I suppose, that I had. When, when the, the recession hit, I buried my head. I completely buried my head. A lot of people will talk about how resilient that they were and how they pulled themselves through things. I wasn't that person. I, I buried my head in the sand. Remember that I said that, you know, we, we tend to t make decisions and they seem to be the right decisions at the time. Well, at that point, my behaviours were pretty poor as a, a husband, as a father, because coming home to a family that I loved, knowing that I had caused them hurt and harm with regards to a pending bankruptcy, uh, I, I didn't. I stayed at work. And when I stayed at work, you become more and more successful, don't you? When you start to focus on something, you become better at that. So I became more successful within my job, but yet in my private life, it was starting to fall apart. To the point whether I should even exist was coming into my head. And I think that was the turning point in my life. You know, when, when those thoughts, processes come in, when I'm standing in the middle of the garage, looking at the possibilities of ending my life and how, uh, that, that generated a massive anger within me. And if anybody knows me, I've never been known to be an angry person, but that generated a massive anger within me. And that surprised me. And it was at that point that I turned my life around, you know. And I suppose this is why I now work with the realms of emotional intelligence, because I had zero. 10 years ago, I had very, very little. I took everything personally, allowed it outside world to affect my feelings. And of course, my outside world was a reflection of who I was or who I believed I was at the time. And, uh, you know, and then the ripple effect of choice all come into play. There's a massive ripple effect. Every choice you make, every action you take is going to have a ripple effect on the rest of your life. So uh, that, that's what turned me around, actually. Going through that, it was on, on the work side, it was grand, it's just privately, on my own life. So I did go through a bankruptcy uh, at one time, and that was with regards to having excessive properties, which were remortgaged to buy more, and then the, uh, the bubble burst, I suppose, is what the expression people would use, the bubble burst. Uh, and then because of that, I just collapsed internally. Why did you feel guilt in, in the house, in your household? There's several several reasons. I wasn't meeting the standards expected from me as the wage earner. Why was I feeling guilt? Is because I had let down my wife. In my perception, by the way, in my perceptions, I had let down my wife. I had let down the boys. They were now going to see a father who had failed. They were going to see a father who, who uh, had everything threw it away. In, in my head, I, I was such a failure. That made me feel guilty that I was raising four guys, four boys, and I was bringing them up to the best of my ability. And all of a sudden, then, when I was trying to teach them, but no, that's just false teachings, Dad. You know, it was, it was, it was the whole guilt of bringing up the boys, and then me not being a product of the product. I suppose there we go. Me not being a product of the product that I was trying to teach them. Uh, so, you know, it's, it was a choice, it was made, it wasn't personal to me. I know all this now. <laughs> I know all this now, but I didn't know it back then. And that's where really I started now, working with other business owners. And, you know, because there's times that sometimes we're afraid of failure, and there's other times we're afraid of success. You know, and sometimes people who are afraid of success, they, they may already be successful. And where they are, but for them to go to the next level, they may need to do things that they're not prepared to do or things that they have a fear. You know, people talk about a comfort zone and people stay within their comfort zone. And I'm going to flip this 180 degrees here with yarn. Those people are not really in a comfort zone because the comfort zone is only a fear that they're staying in there. Their comfort zone is at the other side of where they are right now because it's fear which stops them from going forward. People who self-sabotage themselves because of their, their belief about themselves. In the midst of depression, you said anger kind of triggers that, that point to, to flick that switch. Mm -hmm. Do you feel that, that if you hadn't had that anger, it wouldn't have switched your life around? You know, the primary role of our unconscious mind is to protect the body. 
that's one thing. And the thoughts were going through my head at that time uh, certainly was not protecting my body or me as a person. So therefore, my mind had to deflect what was happening and it brought up those emotions of anger. Okay, call it self-hatred, call it whatever you want to call it at the time. And then after a while, I said, well, give yourself a break. You know, what, what's going on here? Uh, but it was, you know, there was a, there was probably about a week of that where felt really down, but felt really angry in a productive way because it was a turning point. It was a turning point in my life. And, you know, to appreciate now other people, to be able to coach other people in similar ways, I suppose. You know, we all go through life. We all have made choices. We all have made the correct choice at the time. Some of them work out for us, other ones don't. Uh, But to see that as a learning curve rather than a mistake was the important part. And to have that emotional intelligence to see that and to recognize that I'm reacting differently to the other person who the same thing has happened to why am I reacting differently and that's simply because I was wired different you know and you you mentioned guilt growing up you know being brought up very very religious and a religious background uh, there was always a lot of guilt instilled with that type of upbringing because you never were good enough and that makes sense you know when you're brought up in that way and that's part of my conditioning you know I never felt good enough always was seeking approval and be fair to say now like you know i'm completely open-minded now even up through my working life and professional life uh seeking approval from others was was important some people can feel internal frame of reference with regards to who they are i needed an external frame of reference i needed approval from the outside externally but of course i didn't understand any of this at the time Ken, do you, do you think that not taking your life was a grace, a saving grace in making that decision to fight and be successful in, in some way possible? Oh, Arn, you know, listen, we were conceived as winners. You know, we, we've already beaten all the odds even before we fertilised the egg, you know, and this is the whole powerful side of nature. People go right back to basics. People go right back to the simplicity of the basics of who we are. You know, you and me both, we survived all the odds. We were the sperm that fertilised the egg. And if we even go right back to that, you know, the likelihood of us being even born was one to three or four million, but yet it was us. When we were born, Arne, we were born as an equal, the same as any other human has been born in this earth. We were born the same way. So we're all born equals. And what happened was when we were born as equals, we were brought into the world. We were put into our imprint or conditioning period, whatever you want to call it. So when the umbilical cord was cut, we were separated from nature and put into the hand of humans who brought us up to the best of their ability with the information that they had at the time within that culture and environment that we were born into. And this is why there's so many different people around the whole world, different beliefs and religions and cultures, because they were brought up in those environments. So that really started off that conditioning. And I've been very fortunate to be brought into, you know, a good family with high moral values, beliefs. I was also brought into that family and because they were highly religious, you know, there was a lot of guilt applied. You know, there wasn't much of a difference between learning manners, learning values and making mistakes because they were all sort of addressed the same way. So I suppose there's a wee bit of confusion. You know, when you're getting the same punishment for for telling a lie as you did for knocking over the glass at the dinner table, that would instill guilt that mistakes became something that was worthy of guilt. You shouldn't have done it all the best stuff. So, you know, the modern the modern families are bringing their kids up. You know, I, I love to use the word through love. I, I, I'm not saying for one moment I was not loved, but I'm just saying it's a different principle. And when we start to understand the whole emotional side of us, and I've worked and with an awful lot of people who have had the same sort of a background as I've had with regards to religious beliefs, moral beliefs, values, and when those beliefs were administered kinesthetically, let's say, you do tend to come through life feeling not adequate, not good enough, that you're never making the mark. And quite often that's enough to hold people back. That's enough to hold people back. You know, I, I, you know, I get 
it got to the top of my field in construction. Now, I only got there because I was doing a good job. I only got there because I was the right person for the job. I only got there because I had experience and because I had a track record of being good at what I did. So why was I still needing that external reference point of approval? And that's what takes us back to your conditioning period. How were you able to unbreak or derail the conditioning or belief system that was built to this stage? I used at that stage hypnotherapy uh, because I had to go back and reprogram those belief systems. I used hypnotherapy as my source to go into the subconscious part of the mind, to go back into those original programs that had been programmed in and, and deal with them. And, you know, I became a hypnotherapist after that, and I'm actually a trainer of hypnosis. So, you know, I have been training many, many other people to become hypnotherapists. And this is important to say, anybody who has anxieties, anybody who has unjustified fears, they know that it's not a conscious problem. Because if they were to change their mindset, they would do it if it was a conscious problem. Does that make sense? It does, yeah. You, you, could, you could just simply change your mindset. You could just simply just think differently if it was a conscious problem. But these people know that they shouldn't be feeling anxious in certain circumstances, but they can't consciously change that. So therefore, the problem has to be at a level below consciousness. And I'm going to say that's a subconscious problem. And that's where I would specialize. I would specialize dealing with the subconscious part of the mind. Consciously, we know that we shouldn't be anxious stepping into a room and maybe doing a presentation in front of 500 people. But yet that's one of the biggest fears that people have, okay? That's the fear of being judged. It's the fear of maybe making a fool of yourself. It's maybe the fear of saying the wrong thing. It's the fear, whatever the fear is, you know, we need to find out when someone does not take action. Because you know as an action taker, you know as an athlete, Aaron, that you have to take action mm -hmm. to, to get your success. Now, one of the other great athletes about was Muhammad Ali. You know, and he had said that he hated every moment of training, but he did it because he knew that he was a world champion. So he had to take action, even though he didn't want to, for him to reach his goal. So it's to do with the taking action. And you will have to ask business owners, why are they not taking action? Well, if they're not taking action, it's because of some kind of fear. And then we need to address that fear. So you're using hypnosis to address the fear, right? Well, I don't use hypnosis all the time. In fact, I don't use it an awful lot. But I suppose language is hypnosis itself. When you're talking to someone in certain language patterns and communicating with the, the part of the mind that needs to communicate it with. Was it formal hypnosis? It probably wouldn't be seen as being formal hypnosis, uh, but there's there's lots of different methods to, to be able to use to that part of the mind. Uh, it was only a couple of nights ago, I got a, a couple of days ago, uh, I got a call from a lady who had worked with four or five years ago She's a mental health worker. She had been off on furlough. She had actually had the coronavirus and she had rung me up on about lunchtime. Lunchtime on, well, it was only Monday. Lunchtime on Monday. And she said she had to go back into work and she couldn't go back into work because of fear. And I spoke to her at four o'clock and, and we found out what that fear was. You know, she she couldn't go to work at lunchtime and she, she phoned me and she went into work. Uh, I sent her a text there yesterday morning, actually. She said she had a great night. She really enjoyed it. Well, what her fear was, it wasn't the fear of her catching COVID-19. It was actually a fear of her hurting someone else. And that's what was in her nervous system. That was what was in her neural pathways. Well, we went back to the root cause and dealt with that. I took her back to an incident when she was five years old and dealt with that incident. All her fear, apprehensions completely have gone. Yes, she was going to take precautions like everyone else, but uh, those fears have gone and she went in. She actually enjoyed working and helping other people again. You know, and that's one thing, I suppose, with the, the, the lockdown. We, we were talking about fear, you know, we were talking about guilt. Well, the COVID thing was, and they had to do it, certainly up in the UK here, it was uh, stay at home and save lives. That's what the message was. But when you look at the media, I had to stop watching the news after about three days because that's all it was about. It was the high risk. It was the risk of this. It was the risk of that. Stay indoors. 
you know, and it was all to do with saving lives in your life and other people's lives. And it was, it was fear-driven. There was no question about it. It was fear-driven. Was it the right tactic or not? It probably was the right tactic because people, uh, fear does drive people. And what the government wanted to do was to put people into their houses, stay in their house immediately. So what they used was a, a fear tactic. And that worked at the time. The problem is now, because that has been in the media for the last nine or 10 weeks, and that's all they've heard about how serious this is, getting them back out to work again is not having a problem because they've been now reprogrammed to believe the fear with regards of the COVID-19. And I'm not taking anything away from the, the virus. It is a terrible virus if anyone knows anybody who has had it. I, I have spoken to a few people and it is, well, it's literally deadly. But even those who have survived, you know, it was rough on them, but it was fear-driven and it had to be to get people to isolate. But statistically, the majority of people who ever catch it get, have a full recovery. Statistically, there's probably more people who died from the flu last year than has died from COVID in the UK. I think it was about 35,000 died last year with the flu and maybe up at eight, maybe 38 now with the COVID. But certainly before the COVID came in, the figures that I saw was there was 18,000 people in the UK had already died from flu from the 1st of October to the end of February. And they expected those figures to go to about 30,000 this year. You know, that's, that's with the flu, which happens every year. We, we do take massive measures to to contain people. Uh, we do take massive measures to, to uh, I suppose, get people to do what needs to be done. And, and when, when you're using fear as that driver, sometimes it's difficult now to change that around. There's a lot of industry are finding it difficult to get workers back in. Ken, in, in your own rehab to get back to... Your, your awesome self. You said you mentioned hypnotherapy. Did you get to a stage where you were able to change your whole identity to be able to be emotionally intelligent and resilient? Oh yeah, yeah. You know, it's it's nothing magical. It's just, just changing your outlook. You know, how we see the world, and I'm looking out the window here as I'm saying it, how we see the world is a reflection of who we are from the inside. And everyone will see the world differently depending on where they are on the inside. I'm looking out there, whether that's sunny, whether it's raining, I can look at that with graduates. You know, there's other people who will see the world as something different because they're not focused on the good things. They're, not, they're focusing, and we are what we think. There's a, there's, a, there's a quote, we are what we think. And if we think negative thoughts, if we're thinking worst case scenarios, if we're thinking the worst is going to happen, if, if, we're, if we don't have a sense of gratitude for what's there, we're going to feel the same way as we think. Now, hypnosis is one of those methods. Timeline therapy is another. NLP has different linguistic ways of, of changing how people act and react and how they think as well. But that's where we need to go. We need to change that original program. And I found that very easy to do once it started. I didn't realize at the time, but then I, you know, at that stage, pe people use the word of stuck. I was stuck. You know, I had a brick wall, you know, uh, I just froze. And that's where I was. And I was using those words, which didn't even define where I was because I didn't understand where I was. And we have to have a bit of self-awareness. So I do self-awareness, emotional well-being workshops where people can actually be aware of who they are right now. Because when you're aware of who you are right now, you can then change. It's like lifting your phone and you want to put on the sat-nav to go somewhere. Well, what's the first thing that the Google Maps asks you? What's your location? Because that'll take you wherever you want to go, but at least know where to start from. And that's why I do a lot of awareness work with people with regards to their emotions. And with ways to, to do that through questionnaires, through uh, self reflection and when we find out where we are right now understand why we're feeling that way well then we can change that quite easily with people with high anxiety and i was working with one gentleman this week uh, and all my work seems to be at the moment is helping people get back into work uh, and, and i've been doing all this free in my own hometown here uh, i put a few ads in and they book in and i work with them and get them back right into their, their work but there was one gentleman, he had uh, this terrible anxiety of going back to work. 
all we had to do was sort of change his thought processes around that. But that had to be done at a level below consciousness because he knew because of all the precautions, because of the PPE that his boss was providing, because of the social distancing, he knew that there were measures in place, but yet how he felt inside was more important and it was that fear. So we had to deal with that fear. It's interesting how you you just said inside we view people from the skin and yes when we see people when we get to hear people in the language and how they communicate we get an understanding of how they feel inside and with with emotion intelligence you're probably looking for the algorithms of what's happening inside right yeah because you know we are from the skin backwards as you were saying but we're all different and why are we different because that was depending on our conditioning that's depending on our belief systems that's depending on our morals that's depending on our values we're, we have all been programmed slightly different you know and if you can just imagine if, if you had a computer and it was programmed to run a particular program well that's what that computer must run on it has to run that program because that's the program that it has been programmed into it it can't run a different program like for the gamers out there people who have the the playstation games i don't know what the games are now there was call of duty and gran turismo and stuff whenever i was younger you no know, you can't bring out your game and it says gran turismo on the program and yet you want to play call of duty it's not the right program it'll not run that program and we're the same we run on the program that we have is that program effective and efficient for us if it is fine you've got the right program if it's not we need to change that program and remember with regards to programming and how it works if we find something easy in our life that's simply because we have a program that matches that conclusion does that does that make sense yeah. if we find something easy in our life it's only easy because we have a program that matches that conclusion and it's the same as when we find things difficult in our life there's a program that matches that conclusion as well we could be programmed that all oh, life is hard Things are a struggle. Now you'll get through it. You'll get enough to do you. All, all that sort of programming is stuff that we can actually believe at a subconscious level. Is that person going to get through life as well as someone who's actually programmed to believe that there is abundance of life? There's a quality of life. What we put our time and energy and efforts into, we will get a result from it and have the more positive outlook, an outlook of gratitude, an attitude of gratitude. There's two different types of programs of two different types of people. You know, even even regard to weight loss. Uh, and during this lockdown, I've lost uh, a few kilograms. You know, if we eat and behave and act like a heavy person, do you think we'll become heavy? Yeah. Yeah. If we eat, behave and act like a thin person or a slimmer person, would we become slimmer? Yeah. And I love to take everything right back to basics as simple as that. Now, the difference between losing weight and is simply mindset, because someone can come to me and we can change the mindset. So the only thing that's going to then take them to lose weight is time, because now the body has to react to that mindset. So if you act, behave and eat like a thin person, well, guess what? You will become thin. So the only difference there is time. With regards to your mindset, Aaron, we can actually change that immediately. It's like a thought process. You can flip from one thought into another thought so easily. I'm enjoying the conversation. I'm quite happy. I'm grateful this morning. I could take a phone call and find that one of my family has been knocked down. I could find that something bad has happened. Will that change my mindset? Yeah, I'll change it like that. Immediately like that. Because now my focus is on something else. Now, do I stay in that place or do I pull myself out of it again and go and be able to deal with it? And a lot of people, maybe you have anxieties and depressive moods, and we all have them. I'm not saying that there's no one never feels down, no one never feels low, maybe a bit anxious, but they are moods. And the, the dangerous part is taking ownership. And I hear it all the time, my anxiety, my OCD. And they've taken ownership of something that you don't need to take ownership from. It's a thought process which produces a feeling which is going to change your behaviours, which is going to alter your actions. It all starts with the thought process. People with anxiety who come to me, I was telling you about the, the guy who started work this week. And when I asked him about his anxiety, all he could talk to me was the physical feeling that's not in my stomach. And I said, well, what is this anxiety? And all he was doing was doing the physical side. And I says, okay, well, what about your behavior? No, no, it's just this knot. And I said, well, what does that knot in your stomach stop you from doing? And then 
he came to the realisation that because he had knots in his stomach, it stopped him going outside. Okay, and why did you not go outside? Well, in case I met such and such, or in case I saw him, or in case I saw her. Okay, but why would that cause you that? Oh, it gives me that anxiety. I said, why? And then he realised there was a cognitive part to it as well. So when you have anxieties, there's the cognitive part, there's the behavioural part, and then there's the physical part. And that's what I suppose emotional intelligence is, is to realise the full package of those feelings and emotions. People talk about the physical side of anxiety. That's what they talk about mostly. But has it changed your behaviour? Has it stopped you making eye contact? Has it stopped you ringing up your mum? Has it stopped you from going to work? There's a behavioural change. But what's the cognitive part behind that as well? What's the thought process behind that? Fear of being judged, feeling not good enough, being shouted at, whatever it may be. But there always is a thought which is going to cause a change in your feelings, which is going to change your behaviours. And then, to be honest, the, the physical side is probably the last thing to manifest itself, all because of thoughts. So that's, that's I suppose, where taking emotional intelligence down to the very, very basic. It's what we believe in our belief system. Who do we believe ourselves to be? Ken, when, when you came to this conclusion of, of this in your life, did you feel like, like a bird out of its cage and, and it could fly to its its peak performance? And probably now you're able to show everyone that through this system that they, they are capable of their peak performance in whatever aspect it is. Personally, myself, it was a journey. It was a journey maybe over four or five years. Then I actually dealt with it at a subconscious level and that part of it wasn't immediate. So, as I said earlier on then, Aaron, I was going through the journey and I was going through it consciously, okay? So I was, I had the knowledge and I have the information. And we can all have knowledge, we can all have information, but it's really down to attitude, isn't it? It's actually the application of that knowledge and that information. And there's so many people have so much knowledge and information regarding things similar to this, but they don't apply the information. It's, it's the application which was important. And that's where I sort of specialise in, going back to root cause and dealing with the application to make it more immediate, okay? We can change our thought processes in two different ways. We can we can do it through repetition of a suggestion. It's the same as when someone learns to drive a car. You didn't jump into that car and just drive it straight away. You had to practice. You had to practice to get it right. You had to feel letting the clutch out a few times. You had to stall the car a few times and you had to learn from them mistakes. You had to bring in your kinesthetic feelings of your foot on the clutch. You maybe had to bring in your, your auditory with the sound of the engine, the rev of the engine, or oh, no, too high of revs. You know, we had to bring in all this information. We had to maybe look at the uh, visually on the rev counter and the dashboard to know when to change the gear. But all that stuff was a massive learning curve for anyone who starts to drive. But most people now who drive, they do it on a subconscious level. How many times has people jumped into their car, put the indicator on and pulled into their drive and thought, wow, how did I get here? They weren't even consciously driving. They were learning a part of their mind to drive for them, especially if you're on a regular route up and down to work, up and down a particular road. You're driving at a subconscious level. And when we get it, we get it. It's as simple as that. When we get it, we get it. You as a, a Norseman, yeah? First time, yeah, you were a Norseman, yes? Yeah. First time you had a oar in your hand and you were pulling it through the water and you had to have a particular grip and you had to have a particular movement of your body to your shoulders to slide down the sea. What depth did you put it into the water? All them things that you learn, you could sit in the boat now and it becomes second nature. Mm -hmm. But the first time that you did that, you had to learn it. So we do a lot of our things through repetition, repetition. And we can learn these new traits through repetition. Or we can go right in and program the subconscious mind and they can change immediately. So there's two ways of doing it with regards to thoughts. Your thought pattern could be changed as long as you see what needs to be changed. Remember your perception when you took on these feelings for the first time would have been different from an adult. Like I'm 57, you know, I can go back as a 57 year old man to a root cause of one of my feelings and emotions and I can look at it differently. But as a four or five year old, whenever I allowed that feeling to come into my nervous system, I didn't see the world that way, you know. A lot of people, uh, I find quite a lot, it's maybe in school, 
where they've been brought out in front of the class and they've had to read their story or they've, they've had to say a poem and the teacher has them standing in front of all their friends around them and they make a mistake and they feel that they're being judged. They feel that they're being laughed at. They feel that they're being put under pressure. That's the sort of root causes you would have for public speaking. Somewhere you were maybe on stage and you made a mistake and someone laughed at you and you, you took that as a personal thing to you. you know, you've held on to it. These are these are all the, the things that really hold us back in life. So remember that if we find things easy in life, it's because we have a program that matches that solution. Anything that we find difficult in life, no matter what that is, we also have a program that matches that conclusion. And that could be with your work in life, that could be within relationships, that can be within your, your drive at work, your motivation, your procrastination. There, there's reasons for all these things. If you find things difficult, you have a program that matches that conclusion. You have a belief system that this is difficult for whatever reason. And that's where, that's where I would specialise in. I suppose uh, one of my taglines is making the invisible visible. So that's one of my, my jobs, I suppose. Uh, as a coach, as an emotional well-being coach, is to make the invisible visible for my clients. Uh, and then I use another tagline, making the impossible possible. So we make the impossible possible, the seemingly impossible possible for so many people. I love those two phrases. How, tell us about how you discovered those two phrases. I was actually my coach, uh, Daniel Tolson from Australia. He had talked about allowing people to see through self-awareness to actually, through a self-aware process, to see the invisible. Because we don't see it. We're not programmed to look at it. If it's not in our radar, we don't see it. We don't know what we don't know. As if we don't know what we don't know, let's keep it simple. You know, I, I, I love, you know, when I, I do a bit of a training or someone, I'm training under someone, someone will say, right, okay, has anybody any questions? Is there anything there that I haven't covered? And my answer is always, well, I don't know, because I don't know what you didn't say. <laughs> <laughs> you know? <laughs> and they sort of look at me and think, yeah, okay, okay. So, you know, he gave his version of his script. If he left a bit out of his script, uh, it doesn't matter, because I didn't know it anyway. It's the same as a best, a best man going to a wedding, isn't it? It's the same as the best man going to the wedding. He has this wedding speech all written, and he sits down and he's forgotten maybe one or two of the jokes. So what? Nobody else knew that he was going to say the jokes. We, you know, we don't know what we don't know. So there's no point in him feeling bad about not saying that joke. Nobody else knew that he was going to say it to start with. So we sometimes have to let ourselves off the hook. So it was Daniel Tolson that told me about the making the invisible visible. That was something we talked about. And then making the impossible possible. I had a couple of clients and that's what he says. No, it's impossible for me to change. And I got a, a message from them and it was on that. You've just made the impossible possible. So uh, we can all change, Aaron. We can all change. When you read that, Ken, how did that feel for you to realise that through working with them, you made the impossible possible? I get it almost on a weekly basis uh, and I read them and I'm full of gratitude for them. Uh, I have videos, testimonials of people who uh, told me they wouldn't be here if they hadn't come to see me. I've been told to keep them private and that's fine. Uh, I remember I got a text one Christmas morning from a guy about four or five years ago and it was just Merry Christmas Kenny, thanks. You know, it was a bit random on a Christmas morning. And, you know, I sent him back and says, I hope you're having a great one, taking time with the kids. Yeah, and he says, oh, well, this time two months ago, I wouldn't have been here. You know, so when you get a wee text message, Merry Christmas, thanks, you, you know what's in the background of that. When you're getting video testimonials of someone thanking you that they're still here, it, it's just beautiful. It's beautiful. When you get someone who tells you you've made the impossible possible, it's a good feeling. It's not to make me big-headed around. It's just to, for me to know that what I do is helping other people. And that's, that's the important part. Because remember, I used to be one of these people. I used to be in the same place where they are. And, you know, it's a lot of people who do what I do and they coach with regards to the emotional side. They coach with regards to the emotional well-being and emotional intelligence. A lot of these people simply just want to become who they wished was there for them. There's a profound statement. Yeah. They just become who they wished was there for them. 
at that stage when I went through my depressive state, I didn't know any of this. I didn't understand it. I didn't know why I felt the way I felt. I, I didn't even know why I was getting anxious coming home. And I was getting anxious coming home because I was going to have to look face to face into the person that I love, knowing that I'm causing her all this hurt and harm. Having to come home and talk to my kids where I've been encouraged. And I was a rugby coach, you know, so there was, you know, I, I grew up with the, the guys in that sense and talking to them and encouraging them to become successful in life and me now a failure. So you can see where my emotions were overwhelming at that point. So that's why I do what I do, Aaron. There's more than me. This has all happened to you. I have had a, a fantastic life, certainly with regards to employment. I've been fortunate that I've never been employed my whole life. Well, apart from this last eight weeks when I've been told to sit in the house and save lives and that's why we spent a lot of time in the outstanding network and actually gaining information and, and coming on to uh, podcasts some similar to this iron and thank you once again for the opportunity of being able to speak to people and, and allowing them to see and be aware themselves of who they really are because people do not appreciate their awesomeness they're too busy looking at the bad things the depression is looking at what has happened in your life. And there normally will be some kind of anger involved with that. You could be angry with yourself. You could be angry with a circumstance. You could be angry with another person. But there's generally with a depressive state, you're looking back into something which has caused you hurt or harm in your life. Anxiety is looking now forward and you're worrying about what might happen in the future. And to have them both together, it's crippling for so, so many people. You know, anxiety and fear are two different things. Fear is immediate threat. Okay, that's what fear is, is immediate threat. Uh, anxiety is future threat. And to have your head always worrying about what might happen, what if, and there's always that threat out in the future. That, that consumes so many people, Aaron. It really does, it consumes so many people. And if they base that on what happened in previous life, now they've brought their past into it, they've now brought their future into it, and it's, it's, it's a bad place to be. So we need to live in the present, we need to live in the now, and who we are right now. And to have that awareness of where you are right now, as we sit here, where are you right now? Are you happy with where you are right now? Because you can't change the past. You'll have experience from the past, you'll have learnings from the past, but the past has brought you to where you are right now, anybody who's listening to this. But what do you want to do if you're not happy with where you are right now? Because you can only change that now in the present. So if there's changes to be made in your life, if there's changes to be made in your thought processes, if there's changes to be made in your behaviours, if there's change to be made in your decision making, now's the time to do it. Because what we do now is now going to map out the future. And we can have whatever future we want. Ken, it sounds like that you made the impossible possible in your life. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I have. I am in a real, real happy place. I'm in a real good place. I am grateful for my past life. I'm grateful for all the opportunities I have had. I'm grateful that I actually felt low and depressed at that point. Uh, because if it wasn't for that, I would still be running the mundane life. You know, the hamster wheel of life we talk about. I'm still on the hamster wheel and I've been just plodding along doing the same stuff over and over and over again. Not getting anywhere, just going round in circles. So it actually took a massive, we call it in our world, a pattern interrupt. So it took a massive pattern interrupt in my life for me to be aware of, whoa, what was this? And I had to stop the patterns of my life to reassess them. Were they beneficial to me? No, they weren't. They were life-threatening. So therefore, they were not good for me. So what do I need to do now to change that? And then I started on my new journey. So that's where I am now, Aaron. Uh, I'm here to help other people. I'm here to educate other people. And listen, if there's any of my friends listening to me, use me. There's, a, there's an old guy in construction and he came out with a fantastic expression. He used to say, I have friends I haven't even used yet. <laughs> and I thought that was brilliant. <laughs> of course, he, he meant it in the right way. When you talk about friends using you, he actually meant it in the proper sense. And he came out with that expression. He was a fireplace fitter in Ballyclare. Bob Sampy, you called him. And he says, I have friends I haven't even used yet. And you know what? We have all friends that we haven't used yet. Go and talk to them. Speak to them. Go and pick up the phone and use that friend. Because, well, let me put it in another way. If you don't, you're being selfish. And let me explain that. Have you ever given a gift to someone? Or, and how did it make you feel? Don't you feel it yourself? Yeah. 
when you give someone a gift, it's, it's nothing to do with a gift to them. There's two winners, the person that you gave the gift to and you. Mm-hmm. And you actually felt nice inside as well, that you have actually gifted something to someone. So what I'm going to say there to the listeners, don't be selfish. Give someone the opportunity to feel good by helping you. Use your friends. Give them that opportunity to feel good about themselves. And then go and pay that forward and start out this whole revolution of just being kind and helpful and caring and grateful. Ken, as, as someone that's lived 57 years on, on this planet, do you think you're a genius or a self-master of what you do? Oh, no, I wouldn't call myself a genius. And I would love to say we're all geniuses. We are all geniuses and we all have that capability of becoming a genius in some part of our life. We're all a genius at something, but to label myself as a genius, no, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't just go that far. Have I mastered a few things in my life? Yeah, I would like to think that I've mastered a few things in my life. Uh, genius, wow. No, Rembrandt was a genius. <laughs> you know, the guy painted the Sistine Chapel. He's a genius. You know, Hawkins was a genius. There are geniuses out there that I would see as being genius. You know, Albert Einstein, there's another one. But I think there's a wee bit of a genius in everyone. There's something in everyone. And I think if we find our inner genius and apply it, Oh, that was a question. That's a great question, Aaron. Great question. That's thought-provoking. After this interview, I've been thinking about the genius within now. Love it. Excellent. Ken, I want to say thank you so much for coming on to the show and sharing what you've got to share. It's been a blast, and thank you so much. You're very welcome. Uh, good to have a, a catch-up and a chat, uh, and hopefully there's maybe a wee bit of information for someone out there. And thank you so much for the opportunity and for everyone just to remember to find out where they are right now. doesn't matter what happened in the past. That's only a learning curve. Where you are right now is because of the choices that you've already made in your life. So at this point, from this point forward, you can choose to accept all that or you can choose to change it if it's not what you want. And what we do now is going to map out our future. So that's what I'd just love to leave with that there and to have that wee bit of self-awareness. Aaron, thank you so much for inviting me onto your show. But we had a good chat here today. Right, thank you very much. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.